we've seen a 20% increase in our high net worth households engaging in this advice-based, planning-based process. So some of the best referrals come from the commercial lenders in. You've got immediate trust. A credit union household penetration, if it's four to 5%, you're a rock star, right? These banks and credit unions have an advantage from a data standpoint. We've got 54% of our households within the channel digitally engaged. I think our better programs is find the competition very broadly. They're out there competing with wirehouse firms, independents, regionals, as well as the other bank down the street. You want to grow outside the walls. You want to think, why can't our financial institutions think more about, we can add wealth offices and things of that nature. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. This month, we are joined by Chris Melton of Ameriprise and Tim Kilgore of Raymond James. In addition to the impressive industry trends, Chris and Tim will discuss how to continue 2021's gravity-defying momentum, best practice differentiators, competing with other channels, and recruiting. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Stathis Partners and the creator of BankChannelResearch.com, here to shed a spotlight on how far we've come in the first six months of 2021. On a year-to-date basis, the average monthly FC total revenue was 20% higher than the same period in 2020. And for the past five years, the June 30th figure hovered around $37,000, $38,000 per rep, but our 2021 rebound has driven the average productivity to about $45,000 per rep on a monthly basis. In the second quarter, annualized revenue per retail household reached an all-time high, driven by a swell of managed money fees and the highest quarterly fixed annuity activity since Q2 2019. Productivity climbed a bit from Q1, but compared to the second quarter of 2020, we see FC revenue up by one-third and household revenue penetration has soared 
40%. The month of June, productivity uh, dipped 3% from May, but again, year over year, we're seeing growth in leaps and bounds across the board. I would like to thank LPL and Infinix for much of the important data needed for this analysis. And now I'd like to turn it over to Scott and Bob. Hello and welcome to BISA Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis and I will be your host along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself shortly. This is a unique episode since our guests are two executives from third-party broker-dealers responsible for the bank channel. Their perch provides an advantage perspective on what's working and what's not, and that's exactly what we will be digging into in this episode. Bob, let me pass it over to you so you can introduce yourself and then you can have our guests introduce themselves. Bob? Sounds like a plan. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. Today, as always, we have a great panel that we thank and appreciate for joining us today. We'd also like to thank the BISA for their partnership in these podcasts. And while I'm at it, don't forget that the BISA is holding a conference this November in Washington, D.C. Check it out at bisanet.org. So now let's meet our panel. Tim. Hey, Scott. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me on. This is Tim Kilgore. I head up the financial institutions division at Raymond James Financial. We have about 170 institutions we work with, 850 or so advisors. We're spread all across the country. Thanks so much. And Chris. Hey, Bob. Thanks very much. Chris Melton from Ameriprise. I head up nationally the Ameriprise Financial Institution Group. I lead the business development organization. We work with just under 100 financial institutions right at 250 advisors uh, today nationally, credit unions and banks. All right. So to our listeners, that means we have 270 organizations representing 1,100 financial advisors with us today. Well, with that having been said, back to Scott for our opening question. Given that this is a Trendwatch podcast, we'll start with the trending and then we're going to dig into some of the drivers of the growth that our data is showing us. So we've been on a tear as a channel as we look at quarter to quarter growth. Just about every important metric has seen four quarters of straight growth. So as we look at financial consultant productivity, advisory business growth, household revenue penetration, It's all been up since the pandemic kind of knocked us upside the head a bit over a year ago. So four straight quarters of growth, how long will this last? So the first question is, outside of market performance, as you guys look at the programs that your organizations are partnered with, what do you see as the drivers of this growth and how long can it continue? And Chris, maybe you can kick us off. Scott, happy to. You know, at Ameriprise, we focus with our advisors on what we call an ideal practice model. And what that's based on is an advice-based process. So when we look and track the metrics around our advisors and the institution channel and outside the institution channel, you know, for example, we've published over 1,500 plans year to date with over 1,100 of those being high net worth. So these are everything from foundational advice to comprehensive advice. And we know that with our households that have been published, we've seen a 20% increase in our high net worth households engaging in this advice-based, planning-based process. The outcome of that, along with a very purposeful service model of four contacts a year, has helped us really see an increase in our high net worth households of almost 25% year over year. So those are the things for us that we focus on. It's that ideal model. It's making sure that we're delivering an advice-based We want our clients to be digitally engaged. 
We've got 54% of our households within the channel digitally engaged, which means those clients are able to see their investments, they're able to see their published goals, et cetera, at any time, any place, kind of on their phone app, and so are at home or wherever they are. And we know that those metrics really drive results. And if you manage to that and train and coach to that, the results really follow. So Tim, I want to get your thoughts too, but before I turn it over to you, Tim, Chris, let me just ask you one follow-on question. Actually, I have several, but I'm just going to ask you one for now. If I heard you right, you said you see a 20% increase in your high net worth planning households, right? Meaning that as you look at households that plans are being generated for, there is a trending towards high net worth households doing more planning, which is great for a lot of obvious reasons. So the question I have, is that a conscious, well, is it a result of a conscious effort on book optimization with the advisors? It is. So we focus using a tool, we've got a book segmentation tool and and kind of an annual business planning cycle that we take advisors through. So it begins with the annual business planning cycle. Then we move to working with the financial advisors and program management on that book segmentation and understanding. And and then if you think about it, for example, an advice-based process, you're wanting people to engage digitally. Well, where are you going to start? You're going to start in that kind of platinum section, right? Or that A-type client which tends to be a higher net worth household by its nature. So the answer is yes, it is. It's it's our goal to deliver it throughout the book of business. But at the same time, obviously, we've started with the ideal practice at at the higher end of the investable assets and net worth. Chris, congratulations on that impressive growth based on strategic initiatives, obviously. So that's good stuff. So Tim, give us your thoughts. Same question. What do you see going on? Sure. Well, Congrats to Chris and, and supporting advisors. And I, I think that the planning theme is definitely a consistent one that we see as well. We track a, a target households metric, which actually very similar numbers, about 20% increase in target households with a plan over the last year. And that's been a concerted effort on our part, trying to get more advisors to adopt planning and advisors to go a little bit deeper into their book with, uh, with providing planning to their clients. Maybe thinking a little bit more tactically going back to the beginning of the pandemic, I think what we saw was that the advisors who were most proactive as the market started to take that downturn really have been the ones that have prospered over this time. So the ones who sort of proactively did outreach, just kind of going back to basics and connecting with their clients, finding new ways to connect as well as sort of going back to their pipeline and talking to people that they had spoken to previously, have really seen some big gains in productivity and also some really massive accounts come in as well. There's a lot of money in motion. And I think we saw a similar dynamic back in 0809 that advisors who weren't proactive in reaching out while things were getting a little crazy ended up on the losing end. So a lot of our top advisors have really had some good success from that standpoint. I think the other thing, which is sort of broad-based in the industry with where spreads are for institutions, banks and credit unions, I think are are really embracing this business to a greater degree. They're trying to look at how the whole experience is created for their bank and credit union members. And so, you know, that's created better ties to the retail and commercial sides. I think even with the absence of branch traffic in some locations, referrals have started to get fairly strong. Focus on fee income can't hurt with kind of a top-down focus on this channel for sure. So a couple of things you said, Tim, that I want to follow up on or just reinforce. The one is that you said that the advisors that have been proactive have benefited. And so we've seen that as well through all these conversations we've had in the various podcasts that we do. 
the one theme that we keep on hearing is that those advisors that didn't react to the pandemic with a deer in the headlights type of reaction and instead did the opposite, they reached out to their clients, let their clients know that everything was okay, especially the ones that are planning oriented. They had a really good reason to reach out. So the clients didn't panic and got into a conversation about what was going on and the plan they have in place. Those advisors gathered more assets than they ever have before, just because of the conversations they were having with their clients. And several times we've heard that the advisors in talking to their clients, their clients have said, yeah, you know, I have a couple of other advisors and I haven't heard from any of them. And the result of that is they gave more assets to that advisor that reached out. So that proactivity makes a huge difference. The other thing, Tim, you said that I think has a significant implication is an emphasis on the client experience. So I know the minority of the programs out there have embraced what can happen from a very positive standpoint if you really focus on enhancing the client experience. But those that have, have seen very significant results because it's one of the only differentiators you have, right? And it really isn't that difficult to differentiate yourself with a client experience because not enough institutions think about what the client experience means. I think that couldn't be a game changer going forward for those institutions that obsess over the client experience, right? Because we can all think of examples in our lives as consumers where the client experience has made all the difference in the world. And now we're loyal to X, whatever X is, because of the client experience that we as consumers have experienced. And it's the same thing with advisors and institutions. So both of those things I just wanted to emphasize. All right. So this is the last part of that question. And then I want to hand it back to Bob. So as you look at some of these things that are driving growth, how long can it continue? Because it's pretty impressive. We have four straight quarters of growth. Can it continue if we keep on doing the right things? Or what do you guys see in the next couple of quarters, Chris? I absolutely think it can continue for a couple of reasons. And going back to your point about those that focus on the client experience, that takes a lot of things. That's defining the experience. But then you're also having to look at the book segmentation. You're having to figure out what to do with those smaller accounts. I mean, it's a pretty big lift ultimately to get to where you need to go. And then, you know, depending on the size of the investment program and so forth, if you've got two or three advisors, there's probably not as much program management, sales management, and coaching and ongoing there. So we absolutely believe this trend can continue for a couple of reasons. How many advisors have 750 or 800 clients in their book of business, which we know doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so there's a growth opportunity, right? Too many. So there's a growth opportunity. What's the average household penetration or bank or credit union household penetration? If it's four to 5%, you're a rock star, right? Which means that, as you've said over and over again, that means that 95, 96% of those clients are doing something, probably something elsewhere, or certainly a big chunk of them are. So the growth opportunity is pretty unlimited if you'll do the work and hold yourself accountable to the process, right? Totally agree. And just to dig into that a little bit, if you look advisor by advisor at the wallet share, it is extremely rare that advisors are managing the majority of their clients' assets, especially the higher you go in their book segments, right? So just think of the amount of growth from existing clients that can be gained if you focus on that outreach and a better discovery process and the plan. So Tim, you have some thoughts, I believe? Yeah, I think obviously the market has really been a lot of wind in our sails over this recent period. But when I talk to advisors, I often just say, hey, listen, you're starting every year knowing that you have clients in distribution. So you've got a hole to fill. 
So regardless of the market does, you've got to fill that back up just to get back to even. So I think the things we mentioned around it being proactive, I think that has to be a part of every advisor's book. I think segmentation is really critical. You have to free up time to go get in and, and dig deeper with your existing clients and find new clients. And then, you know, I think Chris and I are pretty aligned on the need to do planning. I mean, for advisors, the, the game is changing. The days of just charging 1% and asset allocating, I think, is, is going by the wayside. So you have to offer more value to your clients. And the more you do planning, the more conversation you have, and the, the broader you can serve those clients, create a better experience for them. So absolutely, I think that you not only can it continue, I think it, we have to continue to remain competitive in this channel. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll have a follow-up question for you on remaining competitive in this channel, but Bob has a question that digs a little deeper into this. So, Bob? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. And let's dig in a little bit more into the details of the client experience and financial planning, I'm sure will come out in this next question. The two of you have combined to work with a lot of programs over the year. I think we mentioned 270 programs, 1,100 advisors. That's reaching tens of thousands of customers. And Tim, we produced a podcast in one of our other series with several of your top managers last year. I think it was in October. So when you look at your best performing programs, Tim, what sets them apart? Yeah, Bob, I think there's definitely a, a unique dynamic with the credit unions as it relates to the membership that they serve. A big part of the mission for the credit unions is to provide a broad set of services, make them available to all members. And that really does create a, a community feel and a, a true desire to create this cohesive experience across the board for them. And we definitely find that the ones that do it well and incorporate the investment side into that experience really do prosper and, and move along nicely from a growth standpoint. And thanks so much for that. And Chris, same question. When you look at the best performing programs, what sets them apart? And maybe also share a little bit about any experiences you have with regarding the credit union membership and bank client conversation. Yeah, Bob, thank you very much. And I agree with what Tim had to say is, is really spot on. I, it is interesting, especially in the last three to five years, as you've walked into some of the larger credit unions, and I'm not going against my banking partners here at all, but the, the credit unions have really successfully created a culture that is so focused on the relationship to the member that all channels, all aspects of the credit union are kind of aligned in that going forward. And and I think, the and, and look, I was a bank executive, wealth executive for a number of years, and we struggled with the silos. I think there's less of that, but there is still some of that in the banking side of the channel as you look at it. So I would agree with what Tim said. Any other things that jump at you, any other things that jump out for you with regard to best programs? Absolutely. The, the focus on, we talk about the focus on the planning, but let me give you some thoughts around that. What we have seen, and Tim talked about this, for advisors that are engaged. So we kind of define that in our world as advisors who are actively coaching with our coaching and development team. Those advisors have seen over last year a $65,000 increase in their GDC per advisor versus about $37,000 for advisors that weren't engaged in active coaching, which means really thinking about their practice. So Scott, back to the beginning, if you will, you know, we're seeing this growth. This is a really big part of it. Also for those advisors that are in the coaching, they're adding more high value type clients by a very large percentage versus advisors that are not. And then again, from net new flows, taking the market out of it, we saw $100 million come into those coaching type of advisors versus you know, something much less for that for advisors who aren't focused on, on really changing their practices. 
And that's so important because there's so much competition in the industry. And I think our next question that Scott has is going to lead us down that path, but he might have something right before as he's raising his hand. <laughs> yeah. So the other differentiator we see when we look at programs that are really doing well versus those that are just treading water is the, it's the program manager. And I'm, obviously I'm not talking about managed programs as much as I am dual employee programs, but those program managers that are true leaders that have leadership skills or that have focused on developing leadership skills and are leaders not only with their advisors, but with their other internal partners in the bank. And those partners see them as leaders as well. Man, does that make a difference? Do you guys agree? Do you see the same thing, Tim? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the last podcast I did with you all was some top advisors from the Raymond James platform. And we have some great ones, but I think the skill set and the characteristics you outlined, Scott, are really the ones that you need. They need to be good leaders, respected by their advisors, really good advocates internal to the organization, both across the organization as well as up. And I think the investment world relative to the rest of the bank tends to be a smaller proportion. And so you need to have an outsized voice and a really strong leader to try to get the attention and the investment and the support and the resources. And our top programs tend to have guys and women who do that very well. Yeah. And, and Tim, just to clarify, you said top advisors, you meant top program managers. And yes. we, did a, we did a podcast with five of your top program managers and the leadership skills clearly stand out when you just listen to them talk and the way they manage the program, the way they work with other internal partners, et cetera, right? They break down the walls, they break down the silos, they create a vision and then they lead in execution on that vision. So love that stuff. Chris? To add on to that, if you think about it also, those best program managers, you know, who are thereby typically yielding good results, when they go to the executive leadership or to the committee or to finance to want to grow and head headcount and want to segment the book and bring associate advisors on and move people to second story, well, they've got the faith of the organization, right, in that. Because adding an FTE headcount's a big deal. And if you want to add three or four of them in order to kind of remodel your program and, and really allow for that growth, that exponential growth, you've got to have strong leadership that have proven themselves through the metrics year over year. Yeah, exactly. All right. So... Bob said I had another question, and I do. And there are several things that you both said that transition well into this question. Tim, in particular, you mentioned defining the competition broadly, right? The best programs that you work with define the competition broadly. And I think that is becoming critical because we as a channel have to remain relevant and things move very quickly in the IBD space and the RIA space. And that's who we're competing with, right? And if we want to manage the majority of our clients' assets, then we have to be at least as good as those other people in those channels or better. So with that in mind, what do you think it will take for our channel to compete more effectively with, with other channels in the overall financial services industry? And Chris, why don't you kick us off and then Tim, I'll kick it back to you. Well, we look across not just our advisor channel in the institutional space, but looking across all of our channels, right? Which includes an independent channel, includes our warehouse channel, et cetera. You know, the average advisor at Ameriprise is doing about $700,000 across all channels. Well, you, you know, you compare that to the financial institution channel nationally, and that's a much higher number. And the point I always make when I'm talking to a potential prospect new institution is, 
Why is that when the vast majority of these advisors don't have the opportunity that, that you would think being inside of a bank or credit union presents to itself, right? right. Well, that's because those fishermen have learned to fish. They focus their practice, their organization, their broker dealer is part of that, as well as their, just their selves, the leadership. That's the difference. I mean, those people who don't have that are yet outproducing. So we have to focus very much on process, advice, all the things that we've talked about here today to teach the fishermen to fish. You know, the way I like to explain it is, is that they've got their book of business. They've got the opportunity that the financial institution affords it, but then they've got the community at large that they're a part of, right? And so they have to build their practice to think about extending that institutional brand out into that marketplace to drive greater household penetration just within the community itself. Yeah. One of the best comments that I've heard in one of our podcasts is, yeah, not only do our advisors have to work their books, but they have to work the bank. Right. If you think about the fact they're sitting in a bank or a credit union and what goes on in that bank or credit union, especially as it relates to the business that loan officers are doing, that business lenders are doing, et cetera. If you have good, if you develop good internal partnerships with the right people inside the bank, you're golden, right? If you do that right, you're not going to want to be sitting in a branch waiting for a walk in traffic because you have much higher quality business coming from other parts of the bank other than branch walk ins. I mean, right? That's the bottom line. So totally agree, Tim. Yeah. So a couple thoughts. I think, first of all, all of us as leaders in this industry need to continue to convey the importance of the investment side of a client's experience to the overall bank or the overall credit union. Because bankers traditionally don't really get our business. And I think the more we can educate them and convey the relevance and the importance and how you garner more assets, it lifts the, you know, it's a rising tide for everybody. Um, so, so I think that's pretty key. And, and we spend a lot of time on that with our clients, with our prospects. I think technology, again, is pretty key. So these banks and credit unions are competing with broker dealers or RIAs, and that's all they do all day long is they invest in brokerage technology or planning technology. And you see consolidation in the banking industry driven by regulation and the need to get scale. And the scale is to be able to invest in better technology. So I think working with a firm like a Raymond James or Ameriprise, that technology investment, you get better scale out of it as well. And then echoing some of the stuff Chris said that upping the game for advisors in this channel, providing a broader set of offerings, doing more planning, thinking more holistically about the situation of the end client is really key. Things like longevity solutions, how do we help people as they age? which kind of goes outside the real scope of investments, but it's important to the experience of the client. And then I think a little bit, Scott, what you were saying is that these banks and credit unions have an advantage from a data standpoint. You know, their customers and members transact, they take loans and borrow, they provide all sorts of information to the institutions already. And so if you've got an investment program, how do you harness that intel, that data, and put it to good use to deepen a relationship or to broaden the service you provide? I think that's a key element as we go forward, that the winners are going to really be the ones that harness that data and do a lot more with it. Yeah, that's a great point. And we've had these discussions about the reduction in branch traffic and the reduction in branches, right? And that's because clients of banks and credit unions are interacting more digitally. So I always say, we used to put advisors in branches to get in the way of branch traffic, but branch traffic is going away. What's the new traffic pattern? And it's digital. So how do you get in the way of that? Well, it's data mining, right? So that's going to become core. The other thing, Tim, you mentioned, which I think is really important, are uh, longevity solutions. But the implication there, and it fits in the planning context, the implication there is helping clients protect their assets. Because the one thing you don't want to have happen is 
a client that's done a really good job saving for retirement and then needs some long-term care and all that gets wiped away in a you know two, three-year period because of the expense of that, right? So protecting assets is as important as helping clients grow assets. And we've dropped the ball on that. And one of the things that Bob and I are very passionate about is trying to up the awareness of the need to protect client assets. And we're going to be doing a bunch of stuff in that regard. So I'm going to stop talking and <laughs> send it back to Bob because <laughs> Bob has a last question. And Tim, I think it was you that made a comment about recruiting and the importance of that. And so Bob, bring us home. Sure thing. And for this last question, you know, we were talking about a top-down approach and technology and financial planning, but obviously advisor talent is critical to the ability to drive program success. And lately, we've been talking a lot about advisor talent, especially as it relates to recruiting younger and more diverse applicants. And terminology about what we actually do for clients has also been a hot topic as we talk about enriching people's lives and less about being in a sales career. We even spent time at the last BISA board meeting talking about this. So, Tim, what do banks and credit unions have to do better to attract top talent, Tim? When we talk to our institutions about recruiting, we always start with the value proposition. So why would an advisor, a top advisor in one of your markets come to work for your bank or credit union instead of go to work for someone, a competitor down the street? And if we can't get a really compelling answer, we know we have some work to do from that institution. Brand of the institution is important, the partner they work with, referral opportunity, the tie to the rest of the organization, the office space the advisor might go into, and then the deal they might offer and the payout that they're offering. Those are all the key ingredients that end up coming out. And sometimes we find that bank or the credit union is really good at that. They know how to sell and they do really well at it. Sometimes the raw ingredients are there and they just need to get some help to put together. And then sometimes we need to win some hearts and minds about here's what you need to do to make this an attractive value prop for an advisor to come work here. I would say the other thing that is a, a key factor in the institutions we work with that bring on some good advisors is senior management is involved. And so involved, not just from approving the hire, but they may be sourcing advisors from their network. So some of the best referrals come from the commercial lenders in. You've got immediate trust that they can partner with someone if they're on board. But referring them, then be part of the interview process. I think having the CEO interview a new advisor coming in is a huge signal to a top advisor that this is an important business in the bank or the credit union. And then, of course, foundational to all of that is having the right resource and the right platform that the advisor is going to be able to accomplish what they want to do from a day-to-day -day business standpoint. And that makes a lot of sense. It's Again, it's a top-down approach, getting folks at the higher levels, the senior management level involved in both the recruiting and interviewing process has to add tremendous credibility to the beginning of a new practice for a financial advisor. And Chris, your thoughts about this? I think Tim is really exactly spot on. We have a process we take our institutions through when we're thinking about presenting a candidate to them, the things that Tim was talking about from value proposition, et cetera. One of the things we've noticed is we've brought over a number of million dollar plus advisors and teams. And in recruiting that type of an individual or team is a little more like recruiting into the C-suite of a financial institution. And you got to think of it in that regard. So not for nothing, we're thrilled to bring on advisors that are below a million dollars, et cetera. But when you have those types of folks that are interested, the process is a different type of dialogue, right? That's the expectation. And sometimes our organizations have struggled a little bit with that of trying to apply the normal HR process to a million dollar team. Hey, you got to check all the boxes and so forth. 
But when you're really having those conversations, senior management needs to be involved. They need to understand they're dealing with a person that's really running a successful business in practice. And I would think culture comes into it as well. I mean, with a, over 100 programs at Ameriprise, it's got to be the different cultures. And again, we go so we'll go back to credit union versus bank, which are different cultures. So culture must have to do something with it as well. Culture absolutely does, especially for those types of advisors that are coming in, they're taking their business and really their clients and their family into this. And that culture needs to be one that they feel is going to be supportive in all aspects of their growth. And they've got to align with each other as they think about taking the business forward. And so we've seen some great things in that space. I mean, we've had some great success because of our financial institution partners, but I still think part of this whole conversation today around continuing the growth, et cetera, Recruiting is an important part of that because if you're going to tier the business, et cetera, and you want to grow outside the walls, you want to think, why can't our financial institutions think more about we can add wealth offices and things of that nature? So that's going to require a bit of a change culturally or certainly a very supportive process. And Tim, you had something to add. Yeah, I was just going to reinforce the comment about having a game plan for the entire process. It is unfortunate. We do run into situations. We get a great prospect in the pipeline and then the bank sends the link to the online application process. They're going to talk to HR. And while I understand that that's the process in the bank, that's just not the way that advisor recruiting happens. And we have to change the mindset around that. That's right. That's so critical. To attract top talent to the bank channel, the banks have to get the experience right. And the message, right? So to both of you, I mean, clearly you understand that, but man, the more we, when I say we, those of us that are helping banks and credit unions up their game, the more we can help them with that messaging and why it's so beneficial to work in a bank if they get it right, the opportunities in a bank. I mean, think of the average penetration as 4%, 5%, right? There's a huge opportunity there if they do it right. Just huge, Right. But everything has to be aligned. So those are interesting comments. Sorry, Bob, to interrupt, but I I can't help myself sometimes. (laughs) I I think we're ready to wrap up, right? So there's a couple of things I want to say that I'll hand it back to you for closing thoughts, Bob. First, Tim and Chris, thank you guys for your thoughts and insights. It's always interesting to us to speak with people like you guys that are running third-party broker-dealers and have all the data. I mean, we have a lot of data too, but you guys can get granular with your existing clients and see what's making a difference. So a lot of your thoughts and comments are appreciated and I think will be helpful to our audience. The other thing I want to mention is those of you listening to this podcast will have no idea of all the technical glitches that we had during the recording because by the time you listen to it, it's going to be nice and cleaned up. So I just want to thank the editors that work on this with us because we've given them their job to do during this recording process. But I know it'll come out nice and smooth. So with that, again, thanks to both of you and Bob, let me hand it back to you for closing comments. That is for sure. They have their job in editing and we'll just give them some more probably now to do as well. So again, thanks to Tim and Chris for their participation today. And thanks to the BISA for their partnership with this podcast series. Jeff Hartney, Kat Seifert, and Katie Stokes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Janet Capaletti for all the work on our research and to Ameriprise for their sponsorship. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never have to look for it and our other series as well. And you can get those wherever you get your other podcasts. Finally, don't forget to register for the BISA Regulatory and Compliance Conference. It's live and will be in person in Washington, D.C. in November. Go to bisanet.org for more details. And finally, finally, thanks for listening. All right. Bye, everybody. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks again to Chris Melton of Ameriprise and Tim Kilgore of Raymond James for their time and insights. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.